You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome to Heard Tell. It's a Friday, folks. You've made it to the end of the week. It is April the 1st. No April Fool's Day here, though. We're going to do it straight down the middle like we always do, turning down the noise of the news cycle and covering a couple different stories uh, today on the program. Uh, We've got a great one to end the story, a high note. Uh, America's oldest park ranger has retired at age 100, which is cool because she was talking about the history of women in World War II, especially women of color. She was there for it. Incredible piece of living history, a real living legend retiring. We'll cover that in just a little bit. Also, we're going to update the Madison Cawthorn story we touched on yesterday. Uh, Both of North Carolina's senators have come out and made comments. We'll follow up on that, including uh, some endorsements of his primary challenger for the May primary. Uh, so we will get into that. Also, uh, from Ordinary-Times.com, our friend Oscar Gordon has a wonderful analogy and theory on expert-level trolling in the media, how the media controls us with what does and doesn't go viral. Uh, it's called the laminar flow theory of expert trolling. We're going to read it in its entirety, an excellent piece from Oscar Gordon in Ordinary-Times.com. But also on the program today, great conversation with another of our great young voices contributors that we love having on, Roy Matthews. We're going to talk a little nuclear power. We're going to talk a little energy policy. We're also going to talk, because he's worked on a couple different campaigns, how actual politicians need to talk about these things and how it affects their campaign, especially now that we're in an election year for the midterms. Uh, Nuclear power, energy, and a great conversation with our friend Roy Matthews on the program today. Tom, but first, let's start right here. Let's talk a little education right quick. From the Washington Post, this is written by uh, Nick Anderson and Danielle Douglas Gabriel. They're talking about enrollment dropping in colleges and universities, and they go through, and this is a very lengthy piece, 
they highlight a couple different people. They highlight people who want to work instead of go to college. They highlight folks that aren't sure about taking on the cost of college. And they do a lot of human interest stories. They do a good job writing this piece. I want to just highlight the first part of it here, though. Indiana, Pennsylvania, home of Indiana University of Pennsylvania, not of Indiana. I know it gets confusing. Uh, on Valentine's Day, her hometown college offered Brianna Steinman a seat in its class of 2026. The certificate of admission from Indiana University of Pennsylvania validated her achievements as a mostly a student. I told everybody, the 18-year-old said, I was so excited, but she hasn't gone yet. Steinman plans to take a gap year to work at a nursing home after graduation. High school during the pandemic with long spells of online or wearing masks had felt grueling. For now, paychecks beckon. She wanted to earn and save. I need a break, you know, she said. I definitely need a break. I just want to work. That's all I want to do. Colleges across America are facing a daunting challenge. Their student headcount has shrunk more than 5% since 2019. According to a national estimate, as debt over the value of higher education intensifies during the public health crisis and economic tumult, there's an enrollment loss of nearly 1 million students. Some drifted out of college while others never started. Many colleges are on an urgent quest to keep current students and recover their lost freshmen. At stake are not only the education and career prospects of huge numbers of adults, but also the financial health of regional colleges and universities. Once students leave, they often don't return. Gap years can become permanent. How do we get these people to come back, especially in a jo strong job market? Asked Courtney Brown, vice president with the Lumina Foundation based in Indianapolis, which promotes learning beyond high school. Privileged universities are weathering the upheaval, Brown said. It's everybody else that is hurting. Let's stop right there for just a second. Uh, there's an underlying premise here that is aiding what has been called the education bubble for quite some time. There has been the practice in both theory and practical application in the United States of America for at least the last 40 or 50 years, and even more so in the last 20 or 30, that the secondary education system, high school down, its main purpose is to funnel everybody possible into higher education. The problem, of course, is not everybody should be getting higher education. Everybody should have the opportunity to pursue higher education, but not everybody needs a higher education. The job markets are humming. Unemployment is at historic lows. There are things in the trades where people can make really good money really, really quickly with just secondary education and some certification, and most of it's on the job training. And it's getting really attractive to a lot of students coming out of high school who would like to earn money now as opposed to going into massive debt and not earning money until much later on. It's kind of like, the, remember the old game of life? You had two choices in the game of life. You could start working and earn money faster, or you could go to college and mo earn more money later. Now we know the facts, college education degrees on the whole, you usually make more money later on. But not everybody should go to college. Not everybody should be forced to go to college. And we're starting to see something here. The pandemic years, the generation that went through the pandemic of online school, of school shutdowns, of schools that have been interrupted, they have a different view of the world now. They have a different view of education. Some of them probably have a cynical view of education. Some of them probably have a view that maybe the education system isn't just out for them, but the education system is a big machine that they're just cogs in. And maybe, just maybe, some of the more aware ones aren't in any hurry to become a cog in an even bigger machine when it comes to college. If they can go out and earn, they may want to do that. There's a lot of different ways to get your education, and there's a lot of different ways to take life paths. 
maybe we should have more paths that don't involve funneling kids that have no business or no desire or no want to, to go to college and just give them some paths into vocational school, give them paths into the job market and not make them feel less than if they don't go to college, especially if they don't go to college and rack up massive debts and massive expenses to get degrees that they may not actually want. It's okay for people to get into the job force, but our secondary education system is completely built around making everybody to go to college, whether they need to or not. And the pandemic has exposed it. And the one thing about this that they were very honest about, the post-secondary system, the higher education system in America has been designed to grow and grow and grow. But ask investors on Wall Street, trees don't grow to the sky. The university and college system was never going to grow forever, and it's not been designed to shrink. And now it's going to have to shrink because there's just way more of them than are necessary. That's a hard reality, especially in small communities where colleges can be huge economic drivers. But it's just the truth of it. People have more and more options, and they're taking them. And the higher education system is going to have to adapt. Is it going to be the full-blown bubble burst that we've talked about before? I don't know. But higher education can't just keep saying it's the fault of the students for not showing up. They might need to work on their product, and they might need to make it more competitive, and they sure ought to figure out a way to make it a little less expensive. And they need to quit assuming that everybody wants what they're selling because the people are starting to vote with their feet that they don't. More hotel right after this. Welcome back to Hard Tell. You know, sometimes something's so good that I just have to read the whole thing to you. Uh, that goes for our friend Oscar Gordon over at Ordinary-Times.com. He usually writes a piece called Tech Tuesday, but this time he really uncorked something special. And I want to share it to you in your entirety. Please go to Ordinary-Times.com and read it, but I'm going to read uh, the bulk of it to you. It's called Oscar's Laminar Flow Theory of Elite Trolling. And he starts out by saying, let me get to my theory. I need to explain the analogy. In fluid mechanics, laminar flow is the flow that is even and layered. If it helps, think of a molecule of a fluid traveling from point A to point B. In laminar flow, the molecule will follow a straight line for the most part. It might wibble and wobble a little bit, but the direction will always be towards point B. If the flow is turbulent, that molecule will be all over the place. It'll eventually get to point B, but it'll go up, down, left, right, backwards, all over the place towards A. Another feature of fluid mechanics is what we call the no-slip condition. This states that a fluid has a viscosity greater than zero, some of the molecules of that fluid will stick to any given surface, the wall we're going to call it in the parlance. They travel along, causing the fluid at the wall to have a velocity of zero. Since the fluid at the wall has a velocity of zero, the molecules just a bit away from the wall will have a velocity just a smidge above zero. And molecules even further away will have just a little more velocity, etc., until you get to what we call the free stream, where the fluid molecules are not feeling the effects of the wall at all. The region between the wall and the free stream is called the boundary layer. So it is within this laminar boundary layer that my analogy lives. Imagine a laminar la boundary layer, the fluid all nice and layered near the wall, moving kind of slow, but very even. And as you move away from the wall, the fluid becomes faster as it approaches the free stream and thus is at a higher risk of becoming turbulent, especially if it encounters an obstruction in the flow. Think of this as the flow of public perception. Now imagine all of us regular low-profile low people exist near the wall. We are not seen. We are not part of the public perception. The closer you are to the free stream, 
the more you are in the public perception. In the free stream and a widespread fame, think Will Smith and Chris Rock and that mess exists full-time in the free stream, as do most politicians. Now here's for my theory. Cancel culture, or cancellation for the most part, is elites trolling the masses, not the elites who exist full-time in the free stream, you know, the real big celebrities, but those a bit further down, the ones who think of themselves as elite, who want to be elite, but don't want to be in the free stream. Those elites like being able to say whatever crosses their minds, but they don't like being forced into the turbulence of the free stream because they don't really like to taste the shoe leather when they shove their foots in their mouths. What's my evidence for this? Just look at who sets the narrative. It's all the news links I see that are clickbait about the latest hot take about some problematic bit of entertainment. Hot takes that usually ignore massive amounts of context that undercut the entire argument for X being problematic. All to stir up trouble for the creators of the media or signaling on the part of the author of the essay. Or news links telling me that some offensive brain droppings on social media has gone quote-unquote viral without the media ever really having to prove that it went viral before it ran the story. If something's truly going viral, if the mass media puts it on blast when it's only got a couple hundred retweets or what have you, is that really viral? In short, Oscar Goodman, Oscar Gordon writing in Ordinary-Times.com. In short, think of all the times you heard about a cancellation or a potential cancellation of a nobody going viral, and then think about how often you heard about that thing before the media reported on it. You can probably count it on one hand and still have enough fingers left to drink you a cup of tea. So what's the motivation? Partly, it's the clicks, baby. Got to bring in those advertising dollars. But in my humble opinion, it's also a measure of self-preservation. If those of us who are having close to zero existence in the public perception, those of us closer to the wall in the analogy, become afraid of being forced into the turbulence, we will become less tolerant of people who engage in public shaming regardless of the righteousness of it. So the media likes to shove a stick in the flow and expose everyone to the turbulence so that we all feel anxiety. It's the media expertly trolling us. They want us to have a negative reaction to the cancellation, and that is what they are getting. It's expert level because the media gets to lay the blame for inciting a negative reaction at somebody else's feet, whoever tried to start the cancellation. It's along the same vein, if not the exact alignment, of media reporting on violent crime. Media attention belays the reality of violent crime. Violent crime is trending down, and it tends to be isolated to people already involved in crime and violence, i.e. it doesn't happen to random people in the middle-class suburbs or urban neighborhoods except by random chance. Where I live, we are more likely to be the victim of catalytic converter thieves and porch pirates than gun crime, but people still fear violent crime to a greater degree. Why? Because it's aware of the media power. Media is aware of its power. It's naive to think that they don't exercise it when they can. So before we as a people get upset at some Twitter mob pylon on some poor slub, think about the how and the why you are even aware of said cancellation. And instead of venting your spleen at a nameless woke activist, save some of that ire for the media that chooses to blast somebody, some nobody, out of the water. Because chances are pretty good if the media hadn't decided to run the story, the extent of the viral post would be limited to a couple hundred annoying activists that are easy to ignore. Read it for yourself. Study it. I think he's onto something. The media just likes to stick a stick in the flow and make us all feel anxiety so that we all keep in our place. Something to think about when you're watching the events of the day and discerning the times we live in 
And that's why we call it on this program, turning down the noise of the news cycle so that we can find out what's really going on, not just react to all that turbulence. More Hurtel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hurtel. This will be fun. Let's talk a little bit more energy. Been on everybody's minds lately. Uh, don't know. We don't keep exact records on this thing. Pretty sure this is the first Roy we've ever had on another great Young Voices contributor, Roy Matthews. He's in the D.C. area. He is with the Public Policy Associate at the Alliance for Innovation and Infrastructure. That's AII. And I'm going to say that real carefully because my hillbilly accent, you start putting too many uh, vowels in then bad things happen, Roy. But how are you today, my friend? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Hey, I really appreciate the time. Uh, you took to um, Real Clear Energy and was talking about nuclear power. This has taken on a new life again because of the situation in Russia. Look, these things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in a sequence. What was the sequence of events where after 30 or 40 years of people dragging their feet on nuclear, all of a sudden the Russian invasion of Ukraine has brought people back to nuclear. We know why, but just to make sure everybody's on the same page and we all got our nomenclature clear, why is nuclear kind of getting a little bit of at least policy-wise renaissance the last month or so? Oh, it's a great question. Uh, and quite frankly, it's because of Russia. Russia's used its uh, energy resources, its oil, its natural gas to really essentially capture some European countries, most notably Germany, um, and make them dependent on Russian energy exports. Um, so, for example, countries like France are very, very heavily reliant on their own domestic nuclear power grid. But Germany has sort of transitioned away from more standard coal-fired um, power plants and has started to import a lot of Russian gas, um, which now, uh, thanks to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, a lot of the Europeans are starting to pull away from Russian oil and energy. And now that Germany has no energy, they're starting to reactivate or reconsider um, closing some of their own nuclear power plants. One thing we do on this program is we like to turn down the noise of the news cycle. That's what we talk about. These things, we just said it, they happen in a sequence. Let's back up because um, I was there. I was in Germany in the early 2000s when Gerhard Schroeder was the chancellor. Uh, he was one of the ones that was really pushing this that, hey, we can't have uh, foreign dependencies. We got to get rid of nuclear energy, we need to go green. But uh, the old Faulkner quote, things happen uh, gradually, then suddenly, suddenly we find out uh, Gerhard Schroeder has all kinds of ties to Vladimir Putin and the oil and gas industry in Russia, which of course you don't get those ties unless you're tied into the oligarchs that control them and Vladimir Putin by extension. When we look back on it now, and I know there's rank level corruption in all politics, but energy policy, let, let's be adults here. When we're talking geopolitics and energy, there's a lot of dirty dealing that's been going on the last few years in Europe and things like Gerhard Schroeder and Germany. You can look back on it now in hindsight and go, oh, this wasn't just bad policy. There was some nefarious stuff going on here. Well, like you said, yeah, uh, Mr. Schroeder was the head of the now canceled Russian to Germany uh, key, uh, Nord, Stream, Nord Stream 2 pipeline, almost said Keystone. That's another canceled pipeline. Um and now you're starting to see a lot of governments really sort of take both energy security and energy independence really seriously, because um, no one wants to be dependent on a hostile foreign power uh, to be able to essentially hold their economy captive. Um, and Germany has been one of those countries that has been pushing for, for green energy and the renewable energy transition, which is great. 
But in the meantime, we still don't have some of those crucial technologies like energy storage capacity, um, the ability for these um, lithium ion batteries to hold lots of energy for long periods of time. So you're starting to see these sort of um, transition fuels like natural gas is a huge one. And Germany, for whatever reason, does not want to be dependent on um, say U.S. exports for liquefied natural gas, but rather get them from Russia, mainly just because of the um, the distance making it cheaper. Um, but now um, they're even starting to reconsider again, firing up the old coal power plants, which to the Greens in Germany it seems like it's you know the 1800s again. But unfortunately, that's just where they're at. Yeah, and they've got a coalition government called the Traffic Light Coalition government right now. They can't blow off the Greens or or Olaf Scholz's coalition would not be able to govern. So that's that's a real issue. That's not just a platitude. Um, Sticking with Germany for just a second, though. Look, I'm a logistics and transportation guy by trade. I get it. You got the pipelines through the Ukraine, uh, the Russian gas. I understand that aspect of it, the infrastructure of it. So the flip side of that is, doesn't this tell us in America and the other parts of the world that has vast resources of things like liquid nitrogen or excuse me, liquid natural gas, like the president was talking about in this new deal? You know, he's saying, well, we're going to give them 15 billion units of this stuff. Well, that sounds fantastic until you realize they're trying to replace 240 billion cubic uh, units of this stuff. Doesn't the flip side of criticizing their infrastructure and wanting it cheap is, hey, We've had all this time. We could have built up our infrastructure to export a whole lot more than what we did. We could have already been doing this all along and been more of a viable option for Europe, for Africa, for these other parts of the world that want this stuff, couldn't we? Oh, you're absolutely right. Um, This is really a a source issue and a receiving issue. Um, You have a lot of federal regulations that prohibit certain uh, explorations for gas or for oil on different lands, mainly for environmental protections, but also just because the federal government owns a lot of land, especially out west. And they have a lot more um, regulations and rules and policies to work through. Another thing is Germany hasn't actually built out a lot of the facilities that are needed to actually receive liquefied natural gas. You need terminals, you need trucks to transport it, you need all these specialized materials that can maintain uh, liquefied natural gas liquefied state. You need to keep it at a very, very cold temperature. You need to pressurize it. And so it's really going to take a long time for the Germans to be able to really take this liquefied natural gas off of ships and into their country. Because like you said, they were dependent on pipelines, which those are more efficient ways of transporting something. You put it in one end and it comes out the other. Pretty simple. But um, now that the Russians have essentially turned off the taps, um, Germany's scrambling to uh, have ener- have ener- the energy they need for their economy. Yeah. And since you brought it up, I'll just do it one more time. The flip side of that here in the States, I know like uh, one of the growing ports on the East Coast, Savannah, they have a huge LNG processing plant that just got brought online in the last few years. Uh, these are things that we should be scaling up. Again, part of dealing with the current crisis is starting to make footnotes for the next crisis. Doesn't this tell us like, hey, we should probably have some East Coast LNG plants. Uh, We should probably have some pipelines that go to the East Coast that keep getting held up in court and held up policy wise. Uh, We have pipelines through the Carolinas, pipelines through Appalachia right now. These are all things that are we keep seeming to want to argue these things in a vacuum and we don't quite put them together of like, hey, yeah, there's environmental concerns. We want to be sensitive to them. But now we have a very pro-environmental left policy president, President Biden, saying we need to, we just need to get this stuff now. We need to do this infrastructure now because this stuff takes 5, 10, 15, 20 years to build the infrastructure to really scale it up, doesn't it? 
No, you're absolutely right. The um, At AII, we do a lot of work with pipelines and how to build pipelines uh, in both a carbon neutral way and in a green way. And I believe the uh, the Colonial Pipeline that was hacked a couple couple years ago has a uh, sort of pred- uh, a successor, the Mountain Valley Pipeline, which is the first pipeline in the entire country to be built carbon neutral, meaning you can take the uh, emissions that are emitted from construction materials and vehicles and all that and put that into everything from tree planting to carbon capture to all these different assets to make your um, project carbon neutral. So even if um, you know, politicians or activist groups stress that, you know, we don't want pipelines because they pollute. Well, there are methods now where we can build these massive infrastructure projects for energy and have them be carbon neutral. But again, the change of values that we have to have in the U.S. is, you know, we can't prohibit all utilization of our environment. We just we just can't do it. We need the energy. We need to con- do it conservatively. Um, which is a lot of what these um, green plans for pipelines and all these different construction projects try to do. Let me stay on that theme for a second, because one of the things you're writing about nuclear, we're kind of focusing on nuclear for a minute. One of the things that frustrates me about nuclear is what I just said. Those things take time to build up. We've had nuclear energy for 60 years in this country, but we've really treaded water on innovation and to. There's been technology. People worry about Chernobyl. And of course, we have the miniseries and it's back in people's minds because of the events and and Russia taking over the area where the plant is. That was almost 40 years ago. Technology has and that was outdated technology when they built that. That's a little in the weeds. We've had great technological leaps in this, but we haven't applied any of it. Isn't part of the problem with the nuclear stuff is we could have been doing stuff 15, 20, 30 years ago that would be reaping benefits now much greater than what we're seeing. Even the the most staunchest environmental people, some of the numbers they throw out, if we'd been doing nuclear all this time, wouldn't we be way ahead of even where some of the real naysayers say we are now? I mean, just from the sheer amount of clean energy that each nuclear power plant can produce, absolutely. Um, I mean, we've had nuclear power in this country since 1958. So the first nuclear reactor in this country was built in 1958. And most of these um, plants in this country are fission reactors. But some of the stuff I talk about um, takes some of the you know commonly held safety concerns for meltdowns and power losses and just negates them or reduces them almost to the point where it's not even statistically viable to hold up a project because of it. Um, and you mentioned Chernobyl, you know, that was the Soviet Union, which I think you and I could both agree that comparing the Soviet Union to the United States is like comparing apples and oranges. Um, if you really want to know about the the sort of corruption and the lies about Chernobyl, um, there's a great book, Svetlana Alexevich, uh, Voices from Chernobyl, that won the Nobel Prize in 2015, um, that viewers can take a look at. Um, but the Soviet government was essentially didn't know what they had, what they had uh, when Chernobyl melted down. Um, you know, we have the technology, we have the safety, we have the expertise in this country. Um, so, yeah, we would be much further on our climate goals if we just put our foot down and said we need clean energy and we need it now. And we need to deregulate and make these projects actually viable. Yeah. And Chernobyl was a bureaucratic disaster more than anything else. Uh, talking to Roy Matthews, uh, when we come back, we're going to delve into the nuclear stuff a little bit more. There's some stuff going on at the state level, at the policy level. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about some of the misconceptions of nuclear power. Uh, great conversation going energy, how it affects foreign policy, but also how it affects energy here at home. Uh, more with Roy Matthews of Young Voices right after this on Hurt. 
Welcome back to Hertel, talking a little energy policy, nuclear policy, global politics with Roy Matthews, Young Voices contributor. Uh, okay, let's. We just talked about Chernobyl. The one thing we've had in the states was Three Mile Island, but this goes to the misperception of nuclear power because Three Mile Island, when you read it, we talked about Voices of Chernobyl, the great book about the disaster. Three Mile Island was a nuclear success, but it doesn't play that way because of the stereotypes about nuclear power, does it? Absolutely no. So Three Mile Island is the worst uh, nuclear disaster in the United States. Um, there is a partial release of radioactive materials in the plant in Pennsylvania, but zero fatalities. And that's pretty remarkable in the, I believe the 70s is when it was occurred. Um, and overall, over 18,500 cumulative reactor years of commercial nuclear power plants in 36 countries. Out of all those years, there's been a total of 32 deaths. 31 of those were from Chernobyl, which is a massive outlier. And one of those was from the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant in Japan. And that one death from Fukushima wasn't even linked to radiation poisoning or a radiation leak. Um, a gentleman suffered a heart attack due to the stress of the evacuation. Um, so the misperception that nuclear power is this, you know, deadly and very, very dangerous type of energy is just not true. It's if you put nuclear power next to uh, natural gas or oil and gas, and even if you start in 1958 when nuclear power um, was first established in this country, the death rate is minuscule. It's actually one of the safest forms of power out there. Just to put that into perspective, uh, 2018, the devastating campfire out in California, PG&E was found liable for that. Uh, they had aging uh, electrical transmission equipment. That equipment failed. This would be, you know, roughly analogous to a nuclear plant having a technical failure or a meltdown or whatever you want to call it. That killed 84 people one year, one time in one state, 2018. So just for comparison, it really is just that word nuclear that kind of freaks people out. How do you think policy wise we start to get away from that? Obviously, you know, if things like gas aren't available, if things like natural resources, whether it's pricing or environmental concerns, I guess you could just have a social conscious level where people are like, we don't care. We need we need to do this again. You could have that going. But policy wise, how do you start to get that stigma off it a little bit? And like, no, this is cheaper in a lot of ways, although the front end's a lot more expensive. Long term, it's cheaper, you know, per hour of created electricity. It's infinitely it's the cleanest energy we can really make on a mass scale. How do we get through the stigma of it policy-wise to the average people, do you think? Well, I mean, I'm not from Missouri, but Missouri is called the show me state, right? So you have to show people that that things have changed. Um, and what I talked about in this article, these natrium reactors, um, these have received a lot of investment, most notably from Bill Gates, who started out as this sort of nuclear skeptic as well. And what makes these uh, reactors so revolutionary is that they take water out of the reactor and then they replace it with natrium or which is latin for i think salt with this liquid salt um, concoction it has a much higher boiling point than water which means it can hold a lot more energy for longer periods of time and the main safety concern that most people have is oh well what happens if all this steam builds up in this reactor and this pressurized container explodes if people don't manage the pressure well well with natrium reactors because the liquid sodium can absorb a lot more heat and energy. Steam buildup isn't necessarily a concern anymore. You still have to monitor it, but it's not a huge safety concern. And the, and for cost-wise, this is also a big reason why these nature reactors have the potential to be a lot cheaper 
to maintain these massive pressurized reactors, you have to have all these advanced materials, you have to have pressure gauges, you have to have monitoring and all these extremely finely tuned and well-engineered materials to essentially make these reactors safe. Well, with these natrium reactors, if you remove the need to monitor these pressure, the, the pressure in the reactor, then you take away of, of the need for a lot of those advanced materials, which drives the cost way, way down. Um, and just finally, I mean, the cheap materials, I can't stress this enough, that is one of the most cost prohibitive things to building a nuclear reactor. You have to buy insurance and you have to get all these extremely specialized materials in order to build these reactors. So that is the, cannot stress that enough. That is a huge development. Yeah. And we've seen places uh, like my native West Virginia, you have some familiar ties to West Virginia. They came out, they removed, they had uh, a lot of states had that 70s era restrictions on building nuclear power. They removed it. Now we're not going to see a nuclear power plant in West Virginia anytime soon, but I find it interesting that the very heart of coal country, the very heart of, you know, the carbon economy, some people, uh, our friends on the left like to call it, they're open to this. And they're saying, look, we can put these small size nuclear reactors in a remote parts of the states where logistics of getting other kinds of power in and out of there, you know, we call it piping in the sunshine up the hollers for a reason. That's what you kind of got to do in some cases. Um, what's it tell you when even coal country, they can see it and they're getting ahead of it and saying, yes, we want this kind of technology in our areas. We understand that's going to take the old thing away. But we also understand it's going to be really hard to get the power needs we need for the rest of this century. Oh, I mean, I know West Virginia and people there, the coal industry has been a staple for their entire lives for three, four five generations. And so when your economic livelihood depends on it, yeah, you're going to transition because how are you going to feed your family? So I think the the natrium model is it's still in some preliminary testing and the government still um you know, seeing if improvements can be made and if it's fully safe, which again, this could take maybe until 2025. But no, you're absolutely right. These communities that rely on these energy jobs, they need some alternative. And, you know, the problem with solar and wind, although they are viable options in a national energy grid, um, is you need energy for those times when, like today in DC, the sun really isn't shining or when the wind isn't blowing. And so having these natrium reactors hold this massive amount of energy, um, can be a failsafe in times when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing. Um, just one more quick innovation I want to highlight for the natrium reactors. Um, the big problem with Fukushima was this, you know, they had an earthquake and the tsunami, it killed all their backup generators. So there was no power going to the nuclear plant, which eventually led to an accident, which led to radiation leaking. Um, that has also been taken into account with the natrium reactors. These natrium reactors, they have their own safety system that does not rely on external power. So the, uh, the, these reactors rely on the heat generated from the fission reaction within the reactor to power their own safety system. So it's a closed loop. So if say a storm were to knock out emergency backup generators, the reactor itself would be fine and can run for three, four, five days, just as long as the fission reaction continues. So in terms of safety, when you have a closed loop like that for powering your own safety systems, that that is huge. Yeah, I'm talking to Roy Matthews, a Young Voices contributor. We're talking nuclear power. Uh, let, let's take a step back here, look a little big picture for just a second. Look, I'm a, I'm a freedom and liberty guy. 
my thing on things like energy and the environment, I've, I've gotten off some of the harder core stuff and the buzzwords. And I'm like, I, I want to be an all of the above guy, right? I think mostly with few exceptions, when you're talking freedom and you're talking policies, I want all of the above project. Isn't there a way, because people seem to think there's a zero sum game of like, well, we have to have all electric vehicles and we're not going to bother looking at hydrogen or natural gas vehicles or anything else. I, I feel like we're getting that way with um, some of the greener things of like, well, we can only have solar and wind and hydroelectric and all that. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. Some of that stuff still a ways away, especially things like solar and wind, where the output is somewhat limited, especially unless you do it on a mass scale and it's still limited. I, I want to find a way to explain these as like, look, I'm not against what you're pitching. I'm not against these really innovative green technologies, but we also need some intermediate steps. And we have things like nuclear. We got 60, 70 years of experience doing it. Um, we, if you really want to get away from this, how do we reach out and have those conversations with folks that are a little more hardcore on the environmental stuff and say, look, we just, we're not saying no, we're saying we want an all of the above policy where we can do all this other stuff along with what you're proposing. Because that seems like it'd be a little bit more productive than what we've been doing. Yeah. Well, for nuclear, I just say, look, this is a massive amount of clean, 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 clean energy, no emissions whatsoever that can be used to really boost all these renewables, hydroelectric, wind, solar, I mean, even geothermal in some parts of the country. So nuclear can be a, a standby option. Um, and if they're concerned about the nuclear waste that's been being produced with these naturing reactors, the cool part about them is that they can recycle high grade, medium grade, and even low grade nuclear waste to pull even more energy out from, from out from them. So we would have even less nuclear waste if these reactors were to come online. And look, what I say to folks that are really hardcore on the, the renewable energies, Right now, nuclear energy makes up roughly 20% of the national electrical grid. Um, we've never been a country that relies solely on just one or two or three different energy sources. It's always been a mix. And with space concerns for wind turbines and solar panels mixed with you know, the very limited amount of space you need for a single nuclear plant, these things can be used in tandem. The hard part is just getting you know, what region lines up best with which power source in the Pacific Northwest, you could really use um, some hydroelectric power on all the massive rivers there in the middle of Arizona. Yeah, solar could be a great idea. But for some of these places that don't have these massive amounts of sunlight or fast flowing rivers, nuclear could be an option. Yeah. I'm reminded when I lived in Vegas and everybody's talking about renewable energy, but they're watching their lake drain to, you know, send water to Southern California. People get a little upset about such things. So there's a practical element to some of this. Uh, Roy Matthews, let me ask you one more thing to kind of put a bow on this. Uh, you've had your policy hat on because that's what you do now. Put your political hat back on because you've worked in political campaigns. You've interned for uh, Senator Scott, who's very con pretty conservative. Uh, you worked on the reelection campaign of uh, Senator Collins, who's not as conservative, and we'll leave it at that for our conservative friends who just go, who recoil at her very name, but put your political hat on in a minute. Do you think, how are we communicating with our elected officials? This is an election year. Energy's going to be up there. The economy's obviously going to be the number one issue, foreign policy. This is going to be one of those rare elections because of Russia, because of the economy, because of inflation. We got gas prices. We got energy prices. You start getting in the fall, uh, people are going to start feeling heating bills again. I'm sure those are going to be an issue. How do the actual candidates, when they're running for these offices, because you've been there, you've been in those rooms, you've been in those meetings, how are they going to address this energy crisis, you think, in an election year? 
Well, I think you'll see from a lot of uh, political leaders that say we need to build these pipelines. We need to drill. We need to harness our domestic energy production now. Um, and I know Susan Collins isn't the most conservative person out there, but, um, you know, the state of Maine is a is massively dependent on gasoline, on heating oil because it gets cold up there. So a lot of those you know, working class Mainers are feeling this the most. And I think you're going to see a lot of folks, even, I mean, even Susan Collins understand that we need domestic energy production at least at the very least to get gas prices under control. And if leaders don't provide a solution for harnessing domestic energy production and they want to outsource our oil to, you know, a horrible regime in Venezuela or they want to encourage a regime in Saudi Arabia that, behead, that beheaded, I think, 81 people in a day a couple weeks ago. People are going to notice that, and people are going to take uh, people are going to take notes. All right, he is Roy Matthews. He is the first Roy to be on our program, as far as we can tell. He has answered all our questions. He has been fluid on his feet, which means I got to ask you, man. Uh, you're in the ballroom dancing. So, what, what's your favorite dance here? Because I know the kids watch the Dancing with the Stars stuff. Uh, I can't. I can bust out an electric slide once in a while, but that's about it. I, I don't even claim to be good at that sort of thing. But does that help you in politics and policy, or is that just like me doing food? That's just your way of feeling human again after a dirty day in the trenches of policy and lobbying and so forth. Well, it certainly helps. Uh, I've met my girlfriend who we've been dating for almost almost three years now. That's she a good reason dance. right there. That's all you have. Yeah, to say. you know, you gotta, you know, <laughs> if you're a policy nerd, you gotta have some talent to uh, make yourself a little bit interesting. But yeah, six, I know six different dances, everything from the, the Latin to the uh, like swing to foxtrot. It's a, it's a good time to kind of forget about the toxicity of politics. <laughs> and, and just by definition, if you, if you want to meet a partner, you got to have a partner to dance. That works out great. Uh, Roy Matthews, outstanding stuff. Great job today. Uh, we'll definitely have you back on, but until we have you back on Hertel again in the future, let people know where they can follow you, keep up with you, where you're writing and your social media stuff, sir. You can find me on LinkedIn, just Roy Matthews. I have a nice suit on in my uh, photo. It looks like I have a mortgage. I don't. <laughs> um, and you can follow me on Twitter at your boy Roy SC for South Carolina um, for your standard mixture of political commentary and South Carolina Gamecock sports. Uh, the, the women had themselves a good run. I saw that uh, the other day. Uh, I'll throw out my uh, Division II Glenville State Pioneers won the national title women's basketball. I'll just throw that out there. Since South Carolina's got one of the great uh, women's programs in the world right now. So shout out to them. Um, my buddy Rob Green's listening. He's a big fan of them. All right, sir, Roy, thank you so much for the time. Great job. Let's talk again soon, my friend. All right. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. Anytime. Over at Hertel, quick update on the story we covered yesterday. Talked about Madison Cawthorn, uh, his comments. He had a little bit of a talking to from uh, Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, along with Minority Whip Steve Scalise. Uh, the adults in the room, uh, the North Carolina senatorial delegation, the two senators from North Carolina, have weighed in on the con on the controversy. Uh, Tom Tillis, the uh, junior senator from the state of North Carolina. He's going to be the senior because uh, Richard Burr's uh, leaving the Senate. Tom Tillis, in a statement, blasted Cawthorn. Uh, he also endorsed his primary opponent. And I want to read you some of the notes here. Uh, today, Senator Tom Tillis issued the following statement. 
quote, the 11th congressional district deserves a congressman who is fully dedicated to serving their constituencies. Unfortunately, Madison Cawthorn has fallen well short of the most basic standards Western North Carolina expects from their representatives, and voters now have several well-qualified candidates to choose from who would be a significant improvement. I believe Chuck Edwards is the best choice. This is Tom Tillis endorsing as well as commenting on Madison Cawthorn. Here's the nut of it. He said his endorsee Edwards would, quote, never embarrass Western North Carolina with a consistent pattern of juvenile behavior, outlandish statements, and untruthfulness. Despite a history of making offensive and false claims, Cawthorn seems to be finally getting attention of his party colleagues last week. This is from Huffington Post I'm reading. When he said in an interview that leaders he admired in Washington, D.C. had used cocaine in front of him and invited him to orgies, which he then backed off, by the way. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy told a reporter that Cawthorn had, quote, lost my trust and he's going to have to earn it back. He's given a lot of members very upset. The 26-year-old often stirs up controversy, including recently when he called the Ukrainian government incredibly evil. That's a direct quote. And it's wartime leader, President Vladimir Zelensky, a, quote, thug. Uh, Tillis said in his Thursday statement that Edwards would, quote, never attack Ukraine's fight for freedom or vote against sanctioning Putin's Russia and find himself being used as propaganda. North Carolina's other senator, Republican Senator Richard Burr, told CNN he wouldn't get involved in the primary, but that, quote, on any given day, he's an embarrassment. Cawthorn faces seven Republican challengers in his May 17th primary. Most prominent uh, House and Senate leaders are starting to line up behind Edwards. We'll keep an eye on it. Again, I think Kevin McCarthy should have already taken action directly. He's hoping because, you know, he's a little bit of a coward. He's hoping this will just electorally take care of itself in May in the primary and he won't have to deal with it. We will see what happens. We will keep an eye on it. And it's not just Madison Cawthorn. There's plenty of other people in that caucus. They need to get put back in line and put out of Congress. We'll continue to cover it right here on Heard Tell. Be right back after this. Ah, welcome back to Heard Tell. You know we always try to end on a good note. This one's great note. Uh, an amazing woman. We joke around about look at these legends putting in their work. She's put in two lifetimes of work and got it all into one lifetime. Betty Reed Soskin, the National Park Service's oldest active ranger, has retired at the age of 100. This is from The Guardian. Soskin, who worked at the Rosie the Riveter World War II Homefront National Historical Park in Richmond, California, spent her last days as she had the last decade and a half sharing her experiences and those of other women who worked on the home front. In the Second World War, Soskin was a file clerk in the segregated Union Hall of San Francisco Bay Area during the conflict. And during her time as a ranger, Soskin sought to shed light on the experiences of women of color during the Second World War. Soskin was involved in the park since it opened. She told The Guardian in 2015 she was the only person of color in early meetings that shaped the site's identity. The park, 18 miles north of San Francisco, is in the same city where workers produced hundreds of ships during the war. She started with the Park Service at the age of 84. After working with the agency on a grant to reveal untold stories of Black people's efforts during the U.S. Second World War and became a permanent employee in 2011, being a primary source in the sharing of the history, my history, and giving shape to a new national park has been exciting and fulfilling, she said. It has proven to be meaningful to my final year. Soskin's work brought attention to the unique combinations women of color during the Second World War. As a woman of color, my history with the park is a bit different. My experience was not as a Rosie the Riveter. They tended to be the white woman's story. Black women have been working outside their homes 
Ever since slavery, her stories made profound impact on the Park Service. Betty's efforts remind us that we must seek out and give space for all perspectives so that we can tell more full and inclusive history of our nation. The park plans to hold a celebration of her retirement later this month, 100 years old. And she first started working at the age of 84, and she's teaching history that she actually lived through. What a rare thing. What a thing to be treasured, something to be praised. God bless her. May she enjoy her retirement years <laughs> over already 100, be 101 this fall. And we hope she enjoys them well earned by her. That'll do it for Herd Tell. Uh, make sure you're following us on social media at Herd Tell Show on the Twitter.com. Uh, also, if you want to email us directly, Show at gmail.com. Well, however you're watching or listening, YouTube or any of the podcasting platforms or the Big Talkers Facebook page and live feed and app, please make sure you subscribe. That make sure you don't miss anything we do at Herd Tell, the daily show the Twice on Sunday Recap Show, the long-form podcast. It also lets you interact with us, send comments, make a rating. We'd sure appreciate it. And all of those have a share feature so that you can share us on your social media. We'd sure appreciate it. It only costs you a click, but it means the world to us. And it means the world to us that you took the most precious thing you have, your time, and shared it with us today. We hope you have a great weekend. We'll be right back here Monday with more new Herd Tell. Twice on Sunday, we'll be out on Sunday. That'll review the five great interviews we had this week. And until then, we hope wherever you are, across the street or around the world, we hope you and yours are well. We hope you're well fed. We hope you enjoy your weekend on Herd Tell. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Somos la mano.